You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. It's a joke that Will Rogers made a million years ago. I don't think Will Rogers has been dead for decades would say that today. Democrats are organized now. Something about the ongoing near death of our democracy experience has focused the mind, our minds, liberal, progressive, democratic minds, and we are organizing. And I don't know who said this first, but I've heard it a million times in reference to Democrats snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Usually it's said about Democrats when we lose a race or a legislative battle that we really should have won and looked like we were going to win up till the last moment when we snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. But here's the weird thing. We won last Tuesday night. We won the midterm elections thanks to all those Democrats, Democratic Socialists, lefties and progressives who organized and fought and protested and got out there and voted and are now in Florida and Georgia and Arizona fighting to get their votes counted. We didn't win some high-profile long-shot marquee races. The Zodiac Killer is going back to the Senate. But we took the House on Tuesday night. And as the vote counting has continued over the course of the last week, the incoming Democratic majority in the House went from slim to not-so-slim to thick. Democrats are on track to pick up nearly 40 seats in the House. They may even hit 40 seats in the House. The single biggest Democratic swing since Watergate. Dems also took seven governor's mansions, may take an eighth in Florida, hundreds of state legislative seats. And hey, remember that anti-gay baker who fought all the way to the Supreme Court for the right to discriminate against gays and lesbians? His bakery, Masterpiece Cake Shop, is in Colorado. And his new governor, Jared Polis, is a gay man, the first openly gay person elected governor in our country's history. For the first time, there are going to be Native American women in Congress, two of them, both of them elected last Tuesday night. One, Sharice Davids, is a lesbian mixed martial arts fighter who defeated an anti-LGBT incumbent in blood-red Kansas, which, by the way, also elected a Democratic governor for the first time in ages. The new Democratic governor in Kansas, not gay, but, you know, no one's perfect. Yeah, Republicans expanded their majority in the Senate. And yes, that means we have to pray every day for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health and Stephen Breyer's too. But the Senate was... Always a long shot, and Dems had to defend far more seats in that chamber than the R's did, and the results, if we hadn't organized, if we hadn't fought, could have been much, much worse, and would have been, if not for the hard work of all those Democrats who looked around after the 2016 election and decided that they, personally, individually, had to get out there and do the hard work of transforming the Democratic Party into something that Will Rogers might not have recognized again, an organized political party. So please, if you were demoralized by talking heads on election night who were looking around at the initial results and saying the blue wave didn't materialize, they were wrong. And you, you need to buck the fuck up. We won. We didn't win everything, but we won and we won big and they are scared and they want to demoralize us because they are terrified of what 2020 is going to look like if we keep organizing and keep fighting and keep voting which is exactly what we are going to do. 
All right, coming up on today's show on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads, I speak with an expert about whether it's possible for alcoholics to drink in moderation. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 32-year-old lesbian. I've been in a committed relationship for two and a half years. We've been engaged for the past eight months. And ever since we got engaged, one, we stopped having sex. We got engaged on Valentine's Day and we haven't had sex since. And she's the one that proposed to me. And a couple of times she has said throughout our engagement, this is just moving too fast. This is too quickly. I don't know. And then we would talk about it and she'd say, okay, I feel so much better. I just got scared, but it makes me feel better when I talk about it. We can go as planned. And so I booked a venue. I booked a photographer. I am having my dress made. And a couple of times she just, she just comes up to me and like, this has happened a couple of times where she's come up to me and said, I just can't do this. It's moving too fast. And we would talk about it. And she would just tell me her fears and then she would feel better. And she'd say, okay, let's, let's keep going. I, I, I want to be married to you. I know I do. And this last time was last week. She said that she absolutely cannot marry me next year when we've had it planned, which she said was okay. Um, and I just don't know what she said. She absolutely cannot marry me then. So our wedding is off now, but I don't know how to move forward with this. I don't know if we should just break up. I just don't know. Move forward? Uh, how about move out? How about move on? Listen to what she's been telling you ever since she proposed. Stopped having sex with you. Has told you in a million different ways, not in code explicitly, that she's not sure that she wants to marry you or wants to be with you. And at some point, you have to take her at her word. Sounds like your girlfriend is doing that awful thing people do where they think they're being kind if they play Hamlet about ending a relationship. They're just not sure what to do. They're on the fence. They love you. They don't love you. They want this. They don't want it. And the person that they're Hamleting that whole time who wants to be with them is hoping that they'll fall on the wants to be with me side of the fence eventually. But what they're telling you is I want out. 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 But I don't want to take responsibility for it. I don't want to be mean. I don't want to tell you I never liked you or I don't love you anymore because that'll hurt you. And so instead, I'll act in cruel and arbitrary ways that force you eventually to preserve your own sanity and whatever is left of your ego after I'm done shoving it into this wood chipper, it'll force you to go and you to dump me. And then I get to play the the dumped party and the hurt one in front of all of our friends because you left me when I was still hamletting it up about whether I wanted to be with you at all. And moving out and moving on, it doesn't preclude moving back in with this person down the road if they get their shit together and they realize that you indeed are the person they want to be with. That's what happened. My mother's second marriage You're dating a guy for a while. They got engaged and then he got cold feet. I believe my mother ended it and then he came around and then they spent 30 years together, 30 wonderful years together. So that can happen. Someone can come around and circle back. And if you're still available when they circle back to you, you can take them back if you wish but you have to stop being the fly that your girlfriend is picking the wings off of. Go. And if indeed she does circle back a year or two from now and proposes to you again, a very long engagement and a whole lot of sex during that engagement, or you're going to call it off for the second and last time. 
Hi, I am a 27 female from Texas. And in May, I was tested positive for HSV2. Um, it was the first time I believe that I've ever been tested for herpes. And I guess they tested me because I told them that I had had multiple partners in the past year, which was true, because I know that the CDC does not typically recommend testing for herpes. So I got that news and I was honestly very, very shocked. I've never had any symptoms. I've never slept with anyone that I knew had HSVTU. And so it was quite a, a rock to my world. And it's been quite a rock to my dating world. And I've just been struggling on how to navigate this. I know I've listened to a couple of your podcasts where you've talked about um, herpes and had some people from Planned Parenthood come and talk about herpes, but it's just, it's been very difficult. So I'm just asking when, when should I disclose to someone that I have been tested positive for HSV2, but that I'm also on suppressant medication, I don't have any symptoms, and do I need to tell everyone that I sleep with that I have herpes because I don't have any symptoms? This is a hard one to answer honestly answer because if you're out there having casual sex you're just hooking up with people people should assume herpes is really common really prevalent most people who have it don't know that they have it just as you call her didn't know that you had it until you went and got tested and most people who have it have one outbreak and never have another outbreak ever again uh, or had an outbreak that they didn't perceive that's why a lot of people who have it don't know they have it they had an outbreak and it was so minimal they didn't notice it, but yet they have herpes and they're potentially infectious. But you know you have it and you're taking meds. The odds, if the meds are working for you, that you will transmit herpes to someone else are very, very low. And if you're having casual sex with somebody who's having casual sex with a lot of different people, they should just assume that they are going to bed with people who have herpes occasionally and that they are assuming that risk because it is really, really common. And again, not that big a deal. And yet the stigma and the shame and the fear of it looms so large in people's minds and imaginations and the fear of it is so irrational that putting the burden on someone in a casual encounter to disclose that they have herpes to someone who should just know that if they're having a lot of casual sex, a lot of randos, that they are assuming some degree of risk for contact or exposure. If not infection, you can be exposed without the infection taken. And that they should just assume a certain degree of risk that they're taking on of their own free will for exposure to this, in most cases, no big deal STI, NBDSTI. So I think with casual partners who have a lot of casual partners who are out there just hooking up, I don't actually think that you're under an obligation to disclose. That said... If you're out there having casual sex and you have casual sex with somebody and you really click and then you have casual sex with that person again and then you start hanging out with that person and then a year later you're in a relationship with that person and you have not yet disclosed, you're going to have to disclose at some point. And the more time that passes, the more it will begin to feel like an active lie, not a passive lie, not a lie of omission, but a lie you are telling this person. And then what? Then the risks of disclosing are huge because what's on the line then? Not some casual hookup. What's on the line then is your relationship. What's on the line then is the person to whom you may be at that point engaged or married to. And that fear, once there are real stakes, not just, oh, I'm not going to get laid tonight, but, oh, I might get broken up with, dumped, have to move or get divorced, 
the greater the stakes, the, the, the harder it becomes to disclose. And when I think about that outcome, I then circle back to, yeah, you should disclose to casual partners to spare yourself that kind of stress and pressure if you wind up in an LTR with one of your casual hookups, which is when I think about the people I know in LTRs, almost every LTR in my social circle was a casual hookup that grew into a relationship. So why not disclose it to start? And if that person freaks out, then they're not someone you'd want to be in a relationship with. And they're not someone who deserves even a one night stand with your hot, fine, very low risk ass. So I want to have my cock and suck it too here. I want to tell you that you don't have to disclose, but I want to also urge you to disclose the sorting hat thing. You tell them one thing about you. They tell you everything you need to know at that moment about them might cost you some casual hookups, but in the long run, you're going to be protecting yourself from fear, rejection, heartache, divorce five years in costing myself a few casual hookups is a price I'd be willing to pay to spare myself that kind of grief. Your call though. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old straight female. I'm engaged to a wonderful man, and per your advice, we had a chat early on about kids and Yahtzee. Neither of us really want them. So I got an IUD a few years ago because I want to keep that on lockdown and because I have horribly averse reactions to hormonal birth control. And it's kind of coming around time to get that IUD changed out, yanked out, and another one shoved back up in there. And um, I don't know if you've ever had a huge piece of metal shoved into your cervix, but that shit hurts. I actually passed out during my first appointment, and I've been kind of freaked out about getting it changed out. So in passing, I mentioned to my fiancé that maybe he could consider getting a vasectomy, and he freaked the fuck out. I was actually really surprised by how much he balked at the idea, and I don't know if I'm off base. I kind of did a little Google, and yes, it's surgery, right, but it doesn't seem like it's crazily invasive. Um, so Dan, am I off base here? I don't know why it should be my responsibility to get huge pieces of metal shoved into my cervix when maybe there's an option out there for men too, or maybe it's an ego thing, you know, with the whole getting your manhood taken away. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You have strong feelings about vasectomies. Yeah, I do. I'm the sexy man from Texas. No, you're not. You're Nancy Hartunian. You're the Savage Lovecast producer. <laughs> yeah, I do. I have strong feelings about vasectomies. Yeah, I'm pro-vasectomy. I'm so pro vasectomy. <laughs> you sneak up on men in the park in the middle of the night and give them vasectomies. <laughs> it's like it's like a, it's like a low pain, low cost, low problem solution. So this Guys, guy should get a vasectomy. Yeah, you should get a vasectomy. But he freaked out at just his fiance floating the idea that instead of her having a piece of metal painfully shoved into her uterus, the IUD, uh, not all people experience pain during the insertion of an IUD. Many do, but uh, and once it's in, it's not a constant source of pain. But she thinks instead of her having to do that, he should have to get castrated. Yeah. Uh, it's not castration. Oh, come on. It's totally fucking castrated. There are no balls left afterwards, right? <laughs> I mean, what? otherwise, why is this cats. guy freaking out? <laughs> I, I guess I'm confusing vasectomy with getting fixed. Yeah. No, so many, so many men should get fixed. This one drives me crazy because s women go through so much medical intervention. And let me tell you something. I, I get to listen to all the calls that come in and any time, except for the ones that are over three minutes, which I sometimes just delete without listening to. Hi, listeners. <laughs> Behind the scenes. Keep it the under three podcast. minutes. 
anytime we get a call that basically has to do with women's health and, and definitely with IUDs, we get flooded with calls from women who talk about how painful it is, how the hormonal IUD affects them. It's, it's like it's not incidental. It's like a serious health issue for women right. and for men. Hormonal birth control can crater your libido. It can affect your skin and your weight and your mood. Um, yeah, there are – some people have really negative reactions to some people, many women. Um, some men, some trans men take hormonal birth control. Uh, but many have negative reactions to hormonal birth control. I mean just in defense of it, many, many do not. I mean right. IUDs are great. Hooray for IUDs. But there are – it's true. There are many people who have a hard time with them. And I also can guarantee you that when we talk about vasectomies, do you know how many calls I've gotten from men with botched vasectomies or any sort of problem with vasectomies? Do you know what that number is? I am on the edge of my seat. It is a number. What it's is it? It's the number zero. <laughs> I thought zero is the absence of a number. <laughs> I think it's technically a number. Okay, well, I don't know. We'll this is math. We've moved out of both of our wheelhouses. <laughs> So, but the guy freaked out. So it's obviously a no-go. He had a, a a hugely negative reaction. And she's having a hugely negative reaction to getting that IUD shoved back up in her again. So they're at an impasse. Yes. They could wear condoms. Then he might come around. Anal. The original IUD. <laughs> in you, dookie. Yeah. Yeah, no, this this whole idea that like men, you know, have like a sexual fantasy about impregnating their women, that's... A fantasy. And fantasies are lovely. It's not just straight men who have that fantasy about impregnating their partners and their semen having this sort of magic power, it being literally potent. You can find on all sorts of gay Tumblr porn sites people talking about, you know, anal intercourse. I'm going to knock him up. I'm going to get him pregnant. You will see guys who fetishize, even gay guys, the power of semen to not just frost a turd, which is usually what it's doing during anal intercourse, but to make the magic happen, to make life, to, to make a baby, even in some guy's butt. And so I can't, I can't imagine having stumbled over enough of this gay porn that this isn't something that looms even larger in the erotic imaginations of many straight men, even if they have no intention of, of having children ever, just knowing that they could, knowing that their semen still has this power must be hugely arousing for many straight men. And so you're not just asking like them to, you know, to turn off the tap. You're asking them to let go of something that may have huge erotic significance to them. It may have huge erotic significance to them. But if gay men can get off on the idea of impregnating each other and uh, have that massive suspension of disbelief, <laughs> then so can straight men. Straight men, once you get that vasectomy and you can no longer knock somebody up, you can pretend it never happened and you can still be Mr. Virile. In your mind, which Just is where it all should be anyway. If gay guys can pretend yeah. that they're going to be able to knock up a butt. Yeah. Some of them, not all of them. I don't want to suggest that all gay guys think about that. I certainly don't. Um, but I do want to say that it's, you know, not just my suspension of disbelief that's massive. <laughs> All sorts of things can be massive, not just that. But that's, I think, so we've heard. usually important. But, you know, sometimes I think about gay men. I think about straight men. I think about my, my brother, Billy, who's been with his uh, girlfriend for many, many years. And he got a vasectomy uh, many years ago. He never wanted children. He got it in his 20s, very young. But on some level, there's this biological drive. On some, The sex drive, you know, is about intimacy and connection and pleasure. It's also about reproduction. And I'm willing to cop to that. So on some level, even though Billy has interfered with his ability to make a baby, some part of Billy's reptile brain is driving him to have sex to get his girlfriend pregnant, just as I think some part of my reptile brain is driving me in error 
to have sex to get my husband pregnant, which is not going to happen. Anything is possible with God, as people who oppose same-sex relationships like to say. So, And two men can't make a baby, therefore we shouldn't get married. But fingers crossed, we'll see. Keep inseminating them, see what happens. Keep praying, folks. Still, I, I think I think you're being a little too cavalier, not uh, about male sexuality and, and what it means. You know, female sexuality has all this power, right? The, the in touch in tides with the moon and bleeding once a month and the eggs and the power to create life and 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 gestate life and, and bring new life into the world. There's all this significance to you know the female reproductive system that I think it's bound up in a lot of women's uh, sort of erotic script. And for dudes, there's just that one thing. There's just the presence of the swimmers. There's just the sperm cells. That's the only powerful thing about the dude's reproductive system. It's the only magic. And you're asking the dude to let that magic go. I just, I just need to say, like, you, you, you've heard me say this so many times on the show. It's time for men to step up. And this is an easy one. This one's so easy. You can be the one to take it for the team and overpopulation. Like, get a... Get a vasectomy as soon as you know that you can't, you, that you don't want to have kids, and, how and let your women let your women be free of all this medical intervention. It's a burden, guys. And, and you can then be free. Yeah. You know, birth control methods fail, uh, and if you never want a kid, this is an incredibly effective method. There is a failure rate, very, 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 very small, well under one percent of failure rate for vasectomy. So a vasectomy can fail, but if you really, really, really don't want kids, and you're a dude. It seems to me it's the rational thing to do, but not all sex and desire and eroticism is strictly rational. Yeah. Yeah. It's bound up in fantasy, but you, ha you do have some control of your fantasies and there's a time to make way for reality. And again, like you said, if the faggots can suspend their disbelief and pretend they're going to knock each other up and make Tumblr porn about it, you can get a vasectomy and then suspend your disbelief and pretend that you're still going to be able to knock her up with your magic semen. Yeah. Don't be such a cowardly scrote. It's it's an easy it's an easy procedure, guys. You don't need to freak out and faint over it. Hi, Dan. I am 27, and I've been I'm a straight girl, and I've been in a relationship for the last two and a half years. The last year of which has been long distance. So when we're long distance, we have had a lot of like FaceTime sex over um, that time, and it was fine. But I really hated it, and I I did it because I, I really gave it like the old college try to like really try to like it because I did like that we were physically connecting that way. Um, but I just, what it came down to for me was that I was just really obsessed with the camera and I, and I really hated it. And I was like really obsessed with like, how does my body look? And, and do I look fat? And I'm like a very thin person. So this doesn't even make sense, but I was just too obsessed with like how I looked in the camera and like whether or not I was wearing makeup or, or how my body hair looked. It was, I just, I couldn't like get turned on or sexual or really enjoy it at all just because I was so focused on this stupid camera. So after some wrestling with it and avoiding it for a long time, I finally told my boyfriend, just told him, you know, I don't like this, I, but I like physically connecting with you. So my alternate proposal is um, just phone sex, just auditory, just masturbating together on the phone which I should say, I really like masturbating together uh, when we're in person together. I find it really, really hot and erotic um, and intimate, but just something about the FaceTime camera, it just totally ruins it for me. And I, anyway, he, he was kind of, he was sad. He was like, oh, you know, I noticed that you'd basically been a, like coming up with excuses not to, which I had been, to not have phone sex. And he's like, okay, I'll try it. 
and he he just he's disappointed. And I guess my question is like, does auditory sex, does phone sex, just old fashioned phone sex, is that like a good compromise? Does he just have to like back up and deal with this until he finally moves to be with me, or do I just need to back up and just get over my weird gender shit? I feel your pain about the FaceTime thing. Because I don't like to look at really? myself. I don't like to have pictures taken. I don't like to see pictures of me. Um, I take a lot of pictures of everyone around me because I like to take pictures, but I never like to be in them. Uh, and the problem if you're going to FaceTime, particularly naked FaceTime with someone, is there's that little square that's showing you what you look like at that moment that shows you your own picture, right? Yeah. And your eyes go right there. You're always checking yourself out. Yeah, and I can't turn it off. Yeah, and that's really distracting. You can't turn it off, but you can put a post-it note over it. I don't know. I feel like I'd still worry. I, th- I don't know if it's just like the lighting or whatever, but I, I just always worry about how I look. You don't worry when you masturbate together in person and he's looking right at you. No. Right? I don't. But I feel like he gets the full picture then, you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> you have to trust that maybe he has the full picture in his mind. So if he's only getting a little... A little snippet of you on FaceTime at that moment. He's incorporating that little snippet into the fuller picture that is already etched into his optic nerves about what the fuck his girlfriend looks like. So he's not just taking that little, you know, screwy image online. He's incorporating that image to all the other images he has in his wank file in his head, his solo decks, as I like to call it. Um, but but I mean, you know, I'm not trying to pressure you. But there are options here, including lowering the lights including getting some literal gels, like theatrical gels that you can tape over your camera on your computer. Okay. And, and, and you, can, you, can, you can light yourself better if it makes you more comfortable. Also, a perfectly reasonable option in compromise is we're just going to have phone sex for now because this is too unsexy to me. It, it just turn, it, you know, flips me out. I, I'm not aroused when I have to do this. And, and you know, I'm giving you this advice – Knowing I'm a total hypocrite, I would never have FaceTime jack-off sex with anybody because I wouldn't be able to not pick up the post-it note and look at myself and puke or worry okay. that I looked bad. And I always think I look, you know, I think if I'm standing in front of the camera, <laughs> I look bad. So uh, yeah. I feel your pain, but you have a couple of options. There's some things you can do uh, with your FaceTime. Yeah, there's some things you can do to t- tweak FaceTime. To make it work for you. Also an option is he can be in FaceTime. You can cover your camera so he can't see you. But you can mm-hmm. have some curated videos of yourself. Some videos you've taken that you like. Okay. That yeah. you can send him while he's masturbating. While you watch. And what he's watching on his phone instead of his computer. Are the images of you that you're comfortable sharing. Okay. So there's still this interaction. That has a visual component for him. The other night he suggested, like, if he asked if he could masturbate, and he said, like, basically, like, into the camera, and basically said, like, no pressure for me, which um, didn't end up doing because some of my friends came over Uh, unexpectedly. Um, So I got out of that without. um, You say that like you wouldn't have have wanted to do it. You know, it freaks me out. I don't know. I think it's just like, but maybe if I maybe if I just covered the camera. Because I think I just get too stuck on, like, what do I do with my hands? Masturbate. You know? You masturbate. I mean, well, yeah, but... (laughs) (laughs) But, like, what do I do on the camera? I I think what you need to do here is take yes for an answer. He's offering 
to to do FaceTime with you where only he is seen because he wants you to to watch. That'll turn him on to know that you're watching him masturbate. And you don't have to be watched. And you shouldn't feel guilty in that moment. Like, oh, God, if I was only more comfortable, he could watch me too. And it's not fair that I get to watch him and he doesn't get to watch me. No, 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 no. Sometimes it can be a little unfair because it works for both of you. He's happy to be watched. You're happy not to be watched. You're both happy. That's what's important. Okay. Let me ask you one more thing. But I want to encourage you to surprise him actually with my other idea. Like set that up. I'm going to cover my camera. I'm going to watch you masturbate. We can talk while you masturbate, but you're not going to be able to see me. And then have a couple of little video clips ready to send him. Tell him to have his phone handy too. And then surprise him while you're watching him masturbate with a, a few images of you that you're comfortable sharing with him. And I hope he's the kind of boyfriend you can trust sharing those kinds of images with. And then you'll get to watch him be delighted when these images come through. You'll get to watch him look at his phone and watch his dick throb. And what kind of an affirmation is that going to be? What kind of an ego boost is that going to be? A pretty good one, I think. Yeah, I think he'd really like that. Um, so the, the, but the, the last question I have, which is just that, like, so say I try this and, and, I'm, I, like, and I'm willing to try it for sure. Um, but if I try this and I'm still just like, it's just too much for me. Is it fair to say like phone sex is like a thing that I'm comfortable with and it's a, in like, I'm, I'm happy and I enjoy it and it turns me on too. So is it okay to say, this is just what we're going to do until we're not in a long distance relationship anymore? If absolutely, like, is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely fair. It's also fair for him to ask you to think about it or reconsider or to game out ways that you might be more comfortable doing FaceTime with him if that turns him on. But you get to say no to anything at any time for any reason. And if you're not comfortable doing it, and if it has the opposite of the intended effect, if it turns you off to do it, eventually he's just going to have to let it go. You should ask him that. Like, this turns me off. You don't want me to do this to turn me off. That doesn't make any sense. But he's already responded with uh, you know, an accommodation that allows you guys to FaceTime together where he's the only one on camera. And that, to me, seems like a perfectly reasonable counter, at least for the moment. Maybe in time you'll become more comfortable in front of the camera or you'll get a filter and feel more comfortable. Uh, and you may your position may change. Your feelings may change. You may be willing to go there. But his compromise is I'm doing FaceTime and you're having phone sex, but you can see me, but I can't see you. So it's phone sex from your end and video sex from my end. And then you both kind of have three quarters of what you want. And do you yeah, like, that sounds good. And do you like to watch him? Yeah, I do. I love it. I mean, it's it's weird. I feel like my trepidation with the camera just doesn't make any sense. Oh, my God. Take yes for an answer. <laughs> you said, I'm not comfortable doing this. He says, can I keep doing it? And you're like, ah, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Let him keep <laughs> doing it. He's, he said, let me do this. You don't have to do it. You just have to listen and talk, which is what you want to do. So you're getting to do what you want to do. He's getting to do what he wants to do. Everybody wins. Yahtzee. The solution, you didn't need me to call you. The solution was already on the table and your boyfriend put it there. (laughs) Sounds like a good boyfriend. You should keep that one. I'm working on it. Yeah. Good luck. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hi, Dan. I am a cis 42-year-old woman. I've been married to my husband for almost 10 years. Uh, When we began dating, we laid most of our kink cards on the table. I was totally cool with all of his kinks. But more recently, he has asked me to insert a metal sound in his penis. My initial response was a hard no. 
Uh, I love this man and I want to make him happy in bed, but I do not feel comfortable committing to this particular act, and I'm not sure I ever will. Maybe it's because I have uh, had UTIs in the past and actually know what this sensation is, and for me, I'm deeply put off by it, especially when having it done in the medical office. Uh, but the fact that he wants to explore this with me in the better makes me want to squirm even more. And I'm a pretty girl who's been pretty open to kink, but I'm drawing a hard line here. My husband thinks I'm being dismissive and selfish to his desires. What the actual fuck? Sounding is one of those kinks that freaks people out. You're not the only person out there who's had this initial reaction to someone's request to experience sounding, which is the insertion of a metal rod into the urethra. They are used, they have a medical purpose when people's urethras are scarred or constricted. They will go to the doctor and the doctor will train them how to insert this metal rod into their urethra to open it up, stretch it out, push back against the scar tissue so they can pee again and ejaculate again. It's a legit thing. You might want to go watch some sounding porn before you reiterate this hard no because people have it in their head that it is incredibly painful to be sounded or maybe they've seen the wrong sounding porn first where the rods are enormous, where people have stretched out their urethra is a guy has stretched out his urethra to a point where he can insert like a sound that's the width of a pinky or a middle finger all the way up his urethra. And of course, you look at that and think that must be incredibly painful. And in reality, sounds come in sets, various widths or diameters. I'm not sure which is the term I should be using here from very, very skinny to a little bit thicker to ridiculous. If your husband isn't asking you to jackhammer some fucking rebar into his dick. The way you use the sound in sex play is it's sterilized, it is lubricated, your husband is aroused, his pe- or your play partner's aroused, is, he's hard, he's producing pre-cum lubricant of his own in his urethra, and you place the sound at the tip of the erect penis, and it basically just kind of sinks in all of its own accord. I've been to a few play parties, I've gone to a few leather fetish events, I have seen this happen, and the person to whom it is happening is not shrieking in pain, quite the opposite. And what is wrapped around the urethra at a certain point? The prostate gland. What feels good to have your prostate gland stimulated? It does provide for some guys a form of internal prostate stimulation that's very arousing. And for some guys, it's the mind fuck of it. Here is the thing. Here is my almighty penis with which I penetrate others. And, oh, my God, my penis is being penetrated. Ah, that's so transgressive. Oh, that's so taboo. Oh, that's such an inversion. And that itself can be psychologically arousing. Solo sounding play is also an option for your husband. If this is a no-go area for you, if you cannot bring yourself to do this, if penetrating his penis in this way ruins his penis for you, if it is a libido killer, you can tap out and say, hey, this is something that you're going to have to do on your own. And indeed, you can do it on your own. There are risks. You can get prostatitis, infection of the prostate gland. You can get a urinary tract infection. If your sound isn't appropriately sterilized, but it's one of those things like peeing on someone that people have this freak out that seems to me to exist in inverse proportion to just how fucking dangerous or freaky or weird this actually is. I think it makes a kind of intuitive sense. Transgression turns people on to take the cock, the penetrative tool and penetrate it with another tool. Yeah, you can see why that for many men would be a turn-on. Apparently it is for your husband. Give it a think. Sit with it for a minute. Maybe watch a little non-hardcore sounding porn where it's not stirred in together with other forms of B 
BDSM or pain play where it's not an electrified sound. Those are out there where it's just the gentle sinking of a metal rod, a clean, sterile, surgical steel metal rod into a urethra and then see how you feel. If you still can't go there, tell him to get online, order himself a set of sounds and hide them because you don't want to have to think about it. But if he wants to do it on his own, he certainly can. Hi, Dan. This is completely uh, unscripted. <laughs> so I am a cis-hetero 22-year-old female in a very liberal city in Texas, and I am concerned that I am too friendly with men. I don't date often, but I consider myself a very attractive, confident woman, and I find that, you know, I'm very outgoing and I love to talk to people and be friendly with people. But lately, I've been noticing a trend that has always kind of persisted, but has just now, especially with Kavanaugh, et cetera, has really made me uncomfortable. I find myself in conversation with, you know, if a maintenance man comes in to fix my apartment, I strike up conversation. My coworkers who are males, I also, you know, am very friendly with them. And I notice that what they do is they proposition me in a way. You know, I had one coworker who got fired, but he took my friendly cues as, you know, me being flirty and touched me on several occasions. And, you know, another example, I had a realtor come in to check out my apartment uh, for a tour and we had spoken before, but he had emailed me a couple hours later and asked me to be his friend. Mind you, he was a 40 year old married man and I had no interest in him. So my question to you, Dan, is, should I be less friendly toward men in general to avoid these kinds of awkward conversations and being made uncomfortable? Uh, should I be more closed off or should I just be my friendly self and call men out immediately? I know this is a misuse of the term intersectional, but your friendly, open, engaging manner is intersecting with what I like to call dickful thinking. On the guy's part, you're friendly and you're chit-chatty with these guys, with plumbers and coworkers and realtors, and you're attractive and you're young. And so this 40-something married realtor, his dick kicks in, the dick bull thinking kicks in and it overrides the frontal lobes. And it says, ah, she must really be into you. She wouldn't be acting like that. She wouldn't be talking with you like this. She wouldn't be laughing at your jokes if she didn't want your dick. And that's unfortunate. And you shouldn't have to edit yourself or dial back your personality, but you might want to because dickful thinking is a thing and you can be your friendly, bubbly self more safely with gay guys, with other women. Not that there aren't going to be some bi guys in the pile of guys you assume to be gay or some women who might be bi or lesbian in the pile of women you assume might not be interested in you who might engage in a little dickful or twatful thinking of their own. But straight guys, straight guys, not all of them, hashtag not all straight men, but we hear constantly from straight guys who can't correctly interpret the behavior of the barista who seems so friendly must want my dick. No, of course she doesn't want your dick. I mean, you hear all the time from straight guys who can't quite figure out why the barista is being so friendly to them. It's not that she wants to be tipped. It's not that she was hired and told that she had to be friendly and engaging with customers. It must be that she wants... His dick. Now, of course, not all straight guys are prone to that fallacy. I'm sure you've had lots of interactions with straight guys over the course of your bubbly, engaging life who didn't immediately leap to, hey, she must want my dick. But 
you know that this is a risk, that there's a certain significant percentage of straight guys for whom the dickful thinking is going to kick in and they're going to misinterpret the signals that you are not sending them. You're not intentionally sending them flirtatious signals. You're just being friendly and they are rounding that up through the process of dickful thinking to flirtatious. So knowing what you know, if you want to avoid this, you're going to have to dial it back with the straight guys. You shouldn't have to, but you might want to is what I'm saying. If you don't want to dial it back, and of course you don't have to dial it back, that means you're going to have to deflect the consequences of their problem, their shit, their dickful thinking. When they ask for your phone number, that's when you're going to have to shut it down. When they think, oh, she is basically making a pass at me so I can put my hand on her shoulder, around her waist, then you're going to have to shut them down. If that direct confrontational shutting them down shit is stressful and taxing and you don't want to have to do that, your only other option in a world full of dickful thinking dudes is to dial it back, to be selective about the people that you are your most bubbly, engaging, chit-chatty self with. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old straight woman from New York, and I just had one of my most strange dating experiences dating thus far, and I was hoping you could either shed some light or you know help me decide what to do. I've been talking to this guy for around two months now, but we've never met up. Every time we've planned a date, everything's going well up until the day of. He usually texts me with an excuse as to why he can't come or he just stops responding to my texts, leaving me hanging. Sometimes I'm even blocked without cause. He'll then text me back either the following day or a few days later, apologizing profusely with more excuses than that make me feel bad for him. And much to my embarrassment, I've accepted his apology and we've moved on every time. Uh, We had plans for dinner tonight, but when I texted him earlier today, I noticed that once again, I had been blocked. Now, I don't know why I didn't do this sooner, but I decided to check his social media. Um, I'm not usually one to do that before I actually meet someone, but I decided to do it. Um, And I was weirdly blocked from all of his social media things, which is strange because we'd never talked about social media. Um, But I wasn't blocked from his Venmo. Not sure why I checked it, but that's beside the point. All of his transactions were between him and this one girl, which gave me a weird feeling. So I looked her up and long story short, they're engaged. They got engaged four months ago and have been going on trips together all throughout the time I've been talking to this guy. Uh, The excuse he gave me about his friend dying and him needing a break from talking to anyone and staying at his parents' house on Long Island seems extremely unlikely now since he was in Italy at the time. I don't know what to do, Dan. I'm pretty upset that I was lied to this whole time, but I'm more in an emotional quandary about what to do from here. He technically didn't cheat, so aside from sending sexy texts and photos and stringing me along, he didn't do anything wrong, I guess. But I'm unsure if I should message his fiance. I've split opinions for my friends, and I know that if my future fiancé was planning dates with other girls, regardless of meeting up with them or not, I would want to know. I just don't want to potentially cause this woman who I don't even know any pain or embarrassment if it's not really that big of a deal. Uh, What do you think? If I may venture a small criticism, the first time someone stands you up and blocks your number is the last time you interact with that person 
ever, when you meet people online, people you're interested in dating, you don't let them string you along for months, especially with this kind of game-playing horseshit. You don't let them string you along for months. Here is the policy that you and everyone who can hear my voice right now need to enact. We meet up shortly after our first interaction online, particularly if we're in the same fucking city. We meet up quickly for coffee. We meet at a time when we both have an out. We meet at 1 o'clock in the afternoon when you're still at work and I'm still at work and we have a brief interaction just to verify that you exist and that you look like your pictures and I look like my pictures and I like how you smell and you like how I smell and we're just we, – we exist. We're for real. And we're actually really interested in meeting. Sometimes people put off that first meeting because it seems fraught. And it seems fraught not because it has to be fraught, but because people often make that first meeting higher stakes than it needs to be by meeting for dinner, open-ended evening together. I think that's not something you should do with some stranger from the internet. You don't want to meet at a time and in a place where there is no polite way to Remove yourself from their presence without sort of ending the date, ending the interaction and being quasi-confrontational about it. That's why it's really a good idea, best practice for the first meeting of a stranger from the internet to be in a public place and at a time when you can't spend the rest of the afternoon, the evening, the morning together. You're meeting up for coffee and you're out because you have tickets to the opera with your mother after that coffee or that drink. Anyway, not answering your question. I'm kind of scolding you for allowing yourself to be strung along by this duplicitous game-playing piece of shit. Well, you've done some sleuthing through his Venmo account, and you now know that he's engaged to be married, and when he was sad about his dead friend and on Long Island at his parents' house, and that's why he had to block your number, which makes no fucking sense at all, he was with his fiance in Italy. If the shoes were on the other foot... If your fiancé was playing these sorts of games with other women, you would want to know. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah, you should probably reach out to this woman, perhaps privately, perhaps anonymously. The Venn diagram of duplicitous game-playing assholes and vindictive revenge-seeking assholes, there's a lot of overlap there. And so by blowing up potentially this guy's relationship, you could invite retaliation from this guy. It is unlikely that you are the only woman that he is playing like this. So you have the option when you reach out to his fiance to let her know that she is engaged to a duplicitous game playing piece of shit of keeping it anonymous, leaving your name out of it, not sending her a bunch of fucking screen grabs. Of course, by not sending her screen grabs, that gives him a zone of plausible deniability. Because then she's supposed to believe over him, some stranger on the internet who provided no evidence. And she's unlikely to side with the stranger on the internet with the anonymous Gmail account, absent some proof. So if you have some proof that doesn't out you, I would send that along too. But once you've sent that along, block her everywhere, block him everywhere. Don't ever think about them again. These are not your monkeys. This is not your circus, as a caller once said. Love that expression. And going forward, lesson learned, nobody gets to block you twice. Somebody blocks you once, they're dead to you, particularly someone you've never met. And you're not going to drag out that first meeting. You're not going to allow someone to drag out that first meeting for two months. You're going to tell anyone that you meet online in your city that you're happy to have a couple of quick, brief chats through the service, through the app, but if they want to keep chatting with you and perhaps begin to date you, 
They need to meet up with you. They need to show up or shut up. Hey, Dan. I had a question for you. I recently realized that I had a drinking problem. My wife and I talked, and on the first couple days after I stopped drinking, it was pretty rough. Um, didn't sleep for about 48 hours. Uh, couldn't sleep. And then I went about 90 days, three months, cold turkey, no drinking, got, got you know my life back together, and my wife and I have now a three-month-old. And I told my wife when we talked that I want to get it under control. I don't want to go my entire life without, you know, have another beer again. But when I have a beer or two and a night and I call it quits because I know that I can't drink anymore, it becomes a problem. My wife gets uncomfortable and starts questioning me about when I was drinking because I was doing my drinking not just at home in the car and while driving and at work. I want to know if and when it can go back to normal, where I can have a couple beers without her looking at me uncomfortably or questioning me, or if I should just cut it out completely for the better of the family to make everybody more comfortable. Joining us by phone to help tackle this, Dr. Reed Hester, clinical psychologist and co-founder of Checkup and Choices. Hey, Dr. Hester, how are you? I'm well, yourself? Uh, Very well. Um, a lot of people aren't familiar with the term or, or the concept of what's called moderate drinking. People hear that someone is an alcoholic or they have a drinking problem and they're going to stop and get a, you know, a grip on that problem. And that means never touch another drop of alcohol ever again. And if you're an alcoholic, you're basically a, you know, Olympic sized swimming pool full of gasoline and a single drink is a lit match and it's just going to blow the fuck up. But moderate, <laughs> but there, there's this concept of, of moderate drinking uh, as an approach to, uh, you know, treat or address alcoholism. Can you familiarize listeners who might not have heard of this with the concept? Sure. Well, in the first place, what you talked about with respect to either not having a problem or being an alcoholic is that kind of uh, binary decision that uh, you either are or you're not. Um, and uh, alcohol problems and heavy drinking uh, are on continua. They're not uh, a binary decision. It's not like pregnant. It's more like hypotension or hypertension, I should say. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. And you compare right. it more to hypertension in that? How, how would that work? Correct. Well, you can have a little bit of hypertension. You can have life-threatening hypertension. Uh, hypertension can kill you uh, with a stroke. Um, but uh, sometimes hypertension can be uh, brought under control with diet and exercise or minimal uh, anti-hypertensive uh, medications. Um, and so it's, they are on continuum, continua. Um, and uh, that's the way to think about uh, drinking and alcohol-related problems. Um, it's not yes or no. You're not and either so, an alcoholic with this sickness and this disease or someone who can drink safely at any time to any amount because you do not have this disease. Well, and in fact, there are four to five times as many uh, people who have some degree of alcohol problems but are not what would be considered to be a severe alcohol use disorder. Um, that, that's what typically people used to think of as being an alcoholic. Um, and actually that term hasn't been in the medical nomenclature for a couple decades now. Um, uh, the current term is substance use or alcohol use disorder. So you can have a, a mild to moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. And, uh, if you look at the epidemiology uh, data on drinking in the United States and abroad, 
you see that there are four to five times as many people who are at, who have some degree of problems, but at the less severe end of the spectrum. Okay, so out of the caller-specific questions, you know, just judging mm-hmm. from the fact that he went cold turkey, he stopped drinking, and said he had uh-huh. sounded like serious withdrawal symptoms, didn't sleep for a few days, was physically ill. That would seem to point to a heavier drinking problem, not moderate, but heavy problem. Yes, yes, that's correct, and and also hiding it is a is a uh, is a sign of a more severe use disorder. And he's hiding it in that uh, he's, you know, he says his wife is worried that if he has one or two beers, uh, she fears he's going to, you know, succumb again to the the heavy drinking and the problem. And he mentions that he's drinking at work, in the car, while driving, uh, and and Mm -hmm. basically away from home. So he's hiding it in that he's not drinking those one or two beers in front of his wife, but he is drinking, uh, you know, at work, which is usually not okay unless you work in a bar and you're allowed to have a drink every once in a while, which actually most <laughs> bars don't right. allow anymore. But driving and drinking, having, having an open container of alcohol in an automobile is illegal in all 50 states. Okay, I didn't understand that, that he was, that he was con- having this one or two beers at work or while he was driving. There is absolutely no safe blood alcohol level for being behind the wheel. Um, and it's and it is illegal in all fifty states to have an open container of, of alcohol in your car. Um, that that is uh, that is very risky and hazardous uh, drinking behavior. And points to kind of piss poor judgment. Yeah, you and, might say that. <laughs> and that itself might be indicative of of a drinking problem. I, I want to return briefly again to to the concept of moderate drinking. You know, I've had friends who had mm-hmm. severe alcohol problems who. Got, uh, I don't want to say mixed up with who 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 uh, went to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and found it very beneficial for them. They kind of, and I don't mm-hmm. think this is an insult to say, got religion at AA, which mm-hmm. does have a kind mm-hmm. of hocus pocus woohoo religious component. Um, Alcoholics oh, yes, Anonymous it very does. much does. It ha- it has a spiritual orientation to it, all right. And it helped them, and then and then it became they became less dependent, if I can use that word in this context, on AA. And it, it alarmed some mm-hmm. of their friends and family members when, you know, 10 years after really getting religion about AA, they could never touch another drop of alcohol again in their lives. They began to drink again in in moderation, like mm-hmm. people who don't have a drinking problem might do. They might have uh-huh. a drink uh, while socializing and then not go home and down, you know, a, a bottle of vodka or they wouldn't get sloppy drunk in public. They, they just – they were capable after getting that religion, after being away from alcohol for a very long time – to allow themselves the, the pleasures, the sociability of alcohol, um, without succumbing again to the, the to the, the heavy drinking, to the problematic drinking that had really upended their lives, are these people who, who I've known in my life who sort of arrived at moderate drinking all on their own? Yes, yes, and that is actually the most the most common route to uh, resolving alcohol problems. Most people who have had alcohol problems in the past. Do that and make those changes on their own, without going to treatment, without going to see a, uh, their their family priest, uh, without going to see a counselor. They they decide that you know the, their relationship with alcohol is just is it needs needs to change, and they either stop or they significantly cut back. Is there a stigma against recommending moderate drinking as opposed to cold turkey, never again, to someone who's had problematic drinking patterns in the past? Uh, there used to be, but it, it is shrinking and, and, and evaporating, essentially, especially in healthcare settings, 
where where uh, physicians and medical medical practitioners realize that drinking is on a continuum, and uh, any reduction in drinking from hazardous levels to less hazardous levels is good progress. Now, um, I, I want to I want to return to the specifics of the caller's question. You know, mm-hmm. he wants to know if he needs to cut out the drinking completely. Obviously, he needs to cut out the drinking at work in cars. He needs to cut out the hidden yeah. drinking. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. But it sounds like he might be hiding it because he had such a problem with it, uh, yeah. and he wants to enjoy that one or two beers without being shamed, without being yelled at, um, without everyone around him looking at him like he's you know juggling three boxes of nitroglycerin when he just wants to have Heineken, right. and that may be that may be what's driving him to 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 hide it like this. And who knows? Maybe he's calling yeah. from a part of the country where you have to drive to places to, like Montana or something. I, I, I don't know where people live in their cars um, and, and drinking in a car is more common than in urban environments. Not that it's okay. It is illegal. People shouldn't fucking do it. Um, but culturally it's a little bit more normative in a place like Wyoming or Montana. Uh, not that I approve. I'm not making excuses, but the problem here seems to be the wife is worried that if he drinks at all, the problematic drinking is going to return. And that may be why right. he's hiding. And, and that's one of the contraindications to, uh, uh, attempting to moderate one's drinking as opposed to not drinking is if you have strong family uh, trust issues uh, and strong family objections. Um, and uh, it sounds like uh, his his past behavior has, has really uh, eroded and maybe destroyed her trust in his ability to accurately portray uh, his, his drinking. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't get that back in just a, in just a few months. Right. And it's only been um, 90 that, days. It's not like he's been 10 years yeah. sober and he's reintroduced a beer once in a while. He's 90 days that's sober right. and he's hiding drinking. That's right. And uh, yes. And, and uh, uh, so he's early in the stages of recovery from his alcohol problems. Um, and he needs to uh, he needs to rebuild the trust with his wife um, and his responsibilities to his child, to his baby now. And that may mean um, a longer period of sobriety, of stone cold sober, to demonstrate that he's in charge. Yes, and 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 if and when then he does uh, uh, talk with her about resuming some moderate drinking, he does it only in her presence. And um, so there are a couple of strategy, concrete strategies that I would I would suggest that he for, that he do. Uh, the first is to uh, get what we call a drinker's checkup. And we have that on our uh, checkupandchoices.com website. Uh, and for him to then go into the checkup and to report his drinking and alcohol problems as it was before he stopped. So he can get some very accurate feedback and objective feedback about his overall picture and his risk factors. It will also give him uh, objective data about his likelihood of getting rid of his alcohol problems by cutting back on his drinking. Um, and that's based on some longitudinal, some very solid longitudinal research. Um, so those two then combined with, uh, taking a very, uh, careful and structured approach to, uh, resuming any drinking at, at some point in the future. Okay. Um, and probably not when his wife is in the, you know, early stages of, of mothering, you know, their infant would be my recommendation. And when he does that, what I would recommend that he do is get a BAC intoximeter. You can buy; they have, you know, they have them for um, for the general public. They're not terribly expensive, and he can then, at any point, demonstrate his sobriety to her uh, with that BAC sensor, and b- both before he has a beer and after he has a beer. 
Uh, so she, she she knows that he, so she he can start to rebuild trust in her when he then uh, does resume drinking in her presence. Terrific advice. Dr. Reed Hester, clinical psychologist, co-founder of Checkup and Choices. Check them out at checkupandchoices.com. Thank you, Dr. Hester, for jumping on the phone. I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Anytime. Hi, I'm a long-term listener, first-time caller, a cisgendered woman in her 40s, and a mom of a blended family. My husband and I have been together for two years. We both have a history of childhood trauma and negative experiences around sex from our first marriages. We've been very open with one another about our desires, our boundaries, and our needs. This has resulted in an open relationship, which has been discreet, as we have teenage children and are in a custody battle for our toddler. My husband is into ravishment porn. I'm okay with this, but due to my own trauma history, I don't like it in front of me. So we have a don't ask don't tell agreement around this and he has a laptop with external hard drive for his personal use. He's also agreed to keep this laptop secure so the teenage kids don't stumble across it. Well, the 16-year-old stumbled across it one night a week ago and has just come to me with this information. Also as context, This 16-year-old was last year accused of date rape. In what was a first-ish experience with sex, he misread consent and ended up hurting his girlfriend. She charged him, and this spring he was convicted of sexual assault. As you might imagine, this has been a difficult thing for him personally. It's also been difficult for the family. My son has now come to me with the following. One, he believes what he's seen is disgusting and illegal. He'll have no contact with my husband. Two, he's demanded that I do something or he'll be forced to go live with his dad. Three, he will not talk about it as he doesn't believe there's any excuse for owning ravishment porn. So far, I've, one, told him I'm willing to talk to him about this. I've told him my husband is willing to talk as well. Two, told him I will not tear the family apart because he's upset but that he may stay with his dad until we come to a resolution. Three, talk to his dad who's agreed to keep him as long as our son will agree to family therapy to work through this issue. And four, called my therapist and made an appointment for this afternoon because I'm a wreck. One more little tidbit that makes all this more challenging for me personally. My ex-husband, also known as dad in this story, was sexually abusive with me. My current husband would never touch me without full consent. So, Dan, what do I do? I have three kids whom I love dearly. I love my husband. My husband screwed up when he left his laptop out, but otherwise I don't think he's done anything wrong. My son is naive on issues of sex and consent and thinks he knows it all. Help. Your 16-year-old son is probably pretty angry. If things went down the way you describe that there was a simple misreading of signals, misunderstanding about consent with your 16-year-old son's then-girlfriend. And this resulted not just in charges being filed, but a conviction for sexual assault. Your son is probably pretty angry with himself, with the world. And I, I find it hard to believe that something didn't happen in that interaction that was indeed criminal, considering that Charges were filed and a conviction came down for sexual assault. Your son is probably very upset at himself 
for his choices, for his behaviors, and for the consequences that have rained down on him as a result of his choices in that moment and his behavior in that moment. And along comes this ravishment porn. Your son has been basically on trial and literally on trial, but also figuratively on trial for his actions ever since this encounter, this event with his girlfriend. And along comes this ravishment porn and your son can take all this self-loathing and all this anger and recrimination that he's had to internalize and externalize it and weaponize it. And the real monster in the house, the real monster under this roof, as it turns out, isn't him. It's your husband. It's his stepfather. He's the real monster. You can see why a teenage brain would go there. You could see why a guilt-wracked teenage brain would go there. Now, maybe your son got religion and maybe he understands consent in a more profound way than he did previously and he regards violations of consent as unforgivable and he's having a hard time forgiving his stepfather or even correctly reading or interpreting what his stepfather's fantasies mean. I mean, you could get on the phone with Dr. Justin Lay Miller. He's been on the show a few times. We've talked about how common ravishment, not rape, ravishment fantasies are to be overwhelmed and to be taken by someone you want to be overwhelmed and taken by, which is different than being violated, being taken by someone that you do not wish to be taken by or to be taken in such a way in a moment by someone that you don't wish to be taken, even if it was someone that you had previously had consensual sex with. But you're not going to be able to reason with your son because this is coming from a place of self-loathing and this is coming from a place of anger and humiliation. Think of what your son has gone through, how he's been publicly shamed, perhaps for behaviors and choices and actions and a crime for which he should be held publicly accountable. And now he gets to play judge, jury, and executioner. He gets to point a finger at someone else. He gets to deflect attention away from his actions by pointing to your husband's actions. I don't know how you fix this. Everybody into couples counseling. Everybody into therapy, family counseling, which is going to have to include a download. You're going to have to find a kink positive, sex positive therapist, family therapist, and and help him to understand that consensual ravishment play isn't rape. It isn't non-consensual violation of someone else's bodily autonomy. It's cops and robbers for grownups, the pants off and orgasms. But considering what your 16-year-old son has been through in the last, I don't know, in the last six months or a year, whenever this all went down for him, he's probably not in a place where that's going to be easy for him to acknowledge or wrap his head around. Because again, his motives here aren't just to defend his mother from this monster or his siblings from this monster. His motives here partly are to deflect attention away from himself by making a scene about his stepfather, by busting up this family. By imperiling this family, you say you're in a custody dispute for the toddler. I don't know whose toddler that is, yours, your husband's, you're in a custody dispute, and this is not going to play well in a court or in a custody dispute. You called hoping I would have some answer that might point toward a resolution, but you're already doing what you need to do. He's 16 years old. If he wants to go live with his father, he gets to go live with his father. You telling him that his father is actually the person who violated you, 
is capable of that sort of violation, that's a conversation you would have to have with a referee that would have to be facilitated very carefully, if at all, by a therapist and counselor who can help him understand the nuances here. That a very good person who would never violate someone could be aroused by fantasies of those kinds of transgressions and violations, but understand that that can only ever be indulged in fantasy play, solo masturbation, or with a consenting adult partner who enjoys that kind of role play as much as they do. So long as there's that firewall between the reality of violating someone or being violated by someone, which is the more common ravishment fantasy. It's more common to have fantasies about being ravished than to have fantasies about ravishing. And the firewall exists between that and actual rape. And I don't think with what your son has been through in the last year, that that's going to be easy for him to process or acknowledge without help. I think you're doing everything that you possibly could do at this moment. Let him go live with his father. Get into family therapy and counseling. And if your husband can't keep his problematic porn, problematic not in the sense that he has a problem with it, but problematic in the sense that others are going to have a problem with it, can't keep it under wraps, can't keep that hard drive shut down and put away and his laptop locked down and passworded three times, then maybe he can't have this porn in the house. I'm sorry your family is going through this. This sounds incredibly traumatic. And there is no easy fix, no easy way out. There's just a lot of work you're all going to have to do in a therapist's office. Hi, Dan. Single female from Pennsylvania calling. I recently just started dating a guy who seems super amazing, listens, is very attentive, makes amazing dates makes plans, responds to me. Um, and I recently found out that he, you know, he's in his thirties and his longest relationship has only lasted a few months. It really took me by surprise. I just wasn't expecting to hear that. Um, I kind of see it as a red flag and as someone who has had multiple long-term relationships and has been through some shit, it just kind of concerns me. Um, and I'm just wondering what's your take on a man in his early thirties who hasn't been in a long-term relationship? Do you see that as something that is a major concern or should I just keep going with it to see where this goes and give it a chance because I certainly wouldn't want him to judge me on my many past experiences, which any person totally could do that. And I don't want to judge him on his lack of experience if it's going well and he seems like a legit good guy. What's the worst that could happen? He's never had a relationship that lasted longer than two or three months, not because he kills everyone he dates after two or three months and eats them, but because nothing lasted more than two or three months. So if the past is prologue and this is his MO and he's incapable of sustaining a relationship longer than two or three months, you're out free and clear in two or three months. You won't be caught up in his freezer. You'll just have had two or three months with the guy you enjoy and you'll have spent 
couple of months hanging out with somebody that you kind of like, whose company that you enjoy. And maybe you'll have one of those successful short-term relationships that I like to talk about. Maybe he's had a string of very successful short-term relationships. Ask him about the women that he's dated in the past. Ask him why he hasn't had anything that lasted longer than two or three months. The red flag you should be concerned with is all of the women I've ever dated have been bitches and whores. All of the women I've ever dated have been awful. But if what comes out of his mouth is just, yeah, nothing ever really panned out. I never really clicked with anyone the way maybe I feel I'm clicking with you. Then it could be a good sign. But even if the worst comes to pass and after two months it's over, what have you lost but two months of your time? Yeah, I don't think you should judge him based on this. There are people who make it into their late 20s and early 30s and never really met anybody that they clicked with or hadn't sorted their shit out to know what it is that they wanted until they had that string of failed relationships. Like you've had a string of quote unquote failed relationships. Maybe you had a string of successful short-term relationships instead. But some people might look at your history as you acknowledged and judge you for it. You don't want to be judged for your romantic history because you didn't wind up with the first person you touched with your vulva for the rest of your life. Don't judge him for his history. Hear him out. Dating is about getting to know someone. It's a vetting process. It's a discovery process. If what you discover when you speak to him is that he's a misogynist and he doesn't like women and he doesn't remember any of the women that he's ever dated with any fondness, that's the red flag. Then you bolt. But if it didn't work out because of the timing was off because they didn't want the same things because career or college or whatever else. People can have a string of bad luck. That's really just about circumstances. It's really just about coincidences. It might not be a fault or flaw in him, but the only way to find that out is to spend a couple of months hanging out with this guy that you like. I think you should. All right. Before we get to your phoned in comments, here are a few Thoughts from the Twitters. Hey, at Fake Dan Savage, Laura Hurley tweets, heard a recent Savage Lovecast about a young woman needing to drive hours to access abortion services. Others in similar situations may try aidaccess.org, which is currently offering abortion medications online, including to those in the U.S. Other people have written to me about aidaccess.org. I'm familiar with it, familiar with the work they're doing, and we are reaching out to the folks at aidaccess.org to get them to come on a future Lovecast. Elon tweets at Fake Dan Savage, did you see your SNL shout out? Indeed, I did. And here is Kyle Mooney's impression of what I do here on this program. Guys, if you're into the water sports, have some fun. Pee on each other. Thank you for that, Kyle. And a big thank you to the SNL wig department that gave Kyle my black hair from 10 years ago and not my salt and pepper hair from right now. And J.M. Wilkins tweets, listening to the vile spewings of fake Dan Savage at hashtag Savage Lovecast and loving it. Thank you, J.M. If you want me to see your tweets, be sure to hashtag them Savage Lovecast and maybe I'll read them on a future show. All right. Here are some of your phoned in comments. Hi, this is in response to um, the last episode about the nanny who's bathing the seven-year-old daughter and she started pleasuring herself with the finger brush. Um, she's seven. Why do you have to be there when she bathes? You know, I, I'm a mom, uh, I have three kids, and that age was old enough they could be bathing themselves. And instead of making a really awkward situation or upsetting the mother potentially, what I would do is tell the mom, she's old enough now, you think she can handle it by herself, you know? 
set like a 15 minutes, tell her to get in, wash her hair, wash her body. And in 15 minutes, if she's not out, knock on the door. But I would pose it as, you know, I just think she's getting older now. And I think maybe she should be bathing herself at this point. What do you think? And maybe the mom will get it without you having to say it. Hi, this is a response to the nanny in the last episode uh, with a question regarding bath time. Dan, you were right. And I will also say just as a professional nanny to any other nannies out there, always tell the parents especially if there is something around child sexuality, regardless of what it is, regardless of how awkward the conversation is going to be, get out ahead of it and talk to the parent. You do not want to be in that conversation later of, oh, my child mentioned something funny the other day. Do you know anything about this? If there is something that squicks you out, if there is something involving child sexuality, if there is something that else that possibly might raise a red flag, always always nannies out there tell the parents right away they need to know that they need to be able to protect their child and that's part of your job you are protecting your child and you are helping the parents protect their child always tell the parents if there's something going on hi dan this is a voicemail in regard to episode 628 about the nanny calling uh, regarding the child who was pleasuring herself in the bathtub i think your answer was totally spot on As a pediatrician, my red flags immediately went up when I heard what that nanny was saying about this child, particularly the sounds that this little girl is making. Unfortunately, we see a lot of sexual abuse and trauma in kiddos in the emergency room and in the primary care office. And I think that although obviously it's great to be in a sex positive culture, sex positivity with a seven-year-old doesn't extend to to encouraging her to make, uh, I guess I would say like sexually uh, suggestive noises like that of her own accord. So I would definitely speak with that girl's mom. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The 14th annual Hump Film Festival continues this weekend in Portland and Seattle and San Francisco. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week on installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.